have not signed up for the second session, I would encourage you to do so on the app. Yeah, please. Uh, that way you can get uh, the notes during the week and uh, any extra other handouts that uh, I might uh, post. And let's see. Um, so this is the second session of the Ladder Prophets. So it looks like a lot of you were with us the first session, but um, what uh, newcomers do we have? And could you just raise your hand and can you guys uh, tell us who you are and how long you've been at NCC? Wei Wu, uh, I've been uh, at NCC since last summer. Uh-huh. And? Wen. Uh-huh. Uh, also last summer. Okay, all right. Starting this year, okay. Oh, me? Are you oh. new to this well, session? I, I started to come last Okay, time, okay. Like I, all right. Uh, my bad, my bad. No, you're good. All right, Alex is here again. Yep. And uh, is this, uh, you weren't in the last session, were you? Uh, I was not. Okay. Um, about yep. Awesome. Thank you. Any, any other newcomers to this session? Everybody else was here? Oh, you weren't here last session. Yeah, I've been here about three, two and a half years. Okay, awesome. Uh, anybody else? Okay, everybody else is here. All right, I would encourage you again to uh, sign up on the app. Uh, this is a great way for you to um, uh, get the get the notes, get the handouts, and then also you can sign up for snacks if you'd like to bring snacks some point over the next uh, five weeks. So uh, today we are going to finish the book of Ezekiel. Uh, there's a handout up here. If you do not have it, I encourage you to grab it. Uh, it is uh, Ezekiel 25 through 48. Uh, before we jump into that, do we have any prayer requests? Oh, we have another newcomer. Can you uh, tell us your name? Oh, hi. My name is Obi. Obi? Yes. Great. How long have you come to NCC? Long under a year. Awesome. Well, welcome to the class. Okay. Uh, any prayer requests? Got a uh, baby yet or soon? <laughs> no. Okay. All right. We'll pray for that. Anybody else? Prayer requests? Okay, please pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for this wonderful morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Romans. Uh, thank you for the uh, gift that it is. And um, uh, thank you for what it does in our lives on a regular basis, Father. And um, I would pray for the Rosses. We pray for uh, uh, a baby soon. And we pray for uh, health uh, for everyone and uh, just strength and peace during this time for them. And Father, we pray for this time together. Pray we can honor you uh, with our thoughts and our actions. We say all this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Okay. Uh, Ezekiel 25 through 48. Uh, we talked about this last week, but Ezekiel was written by the prophet Ezekiel sometime around 570 B.C. So he's in the midst of the exile. Um, we see him actually 
in Babylon, uh, you know, kind of at the towards the beginning of his ministry, he's already in Babylon, but um, then he's still doing ministry through the full exile, which, you know, the full destruction comes in 586. So that's uh, the time that he's uh, serving in. Um, we saw last week through the first half, uh, if you turn to uh, chapter 10, let me bring this up. Um, Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. So we saw this idea of um, the, the presence of God being a major theme in Ezekiel. And he was suggesting that the, the major problem now is that God's presence has left the temple. Uh, because of your sin, God's presence has left the temple. Uh, he didn't change. You changed. Your sin has caused a barrier between you and him. So, uh, but we did see the presence of God being a major theme, and we saw a hint of what he's going to talk about this week, which is uh, the new covenant and the presence of God related to that. So we saw kind of a little foreshadowing of that last week, but we're going to jump more into that uh, in detail today. So uh, let's see. Let's start with Ezekiel 25 through 28. Uh, on your handout there, let me get to, where do I be here? Okay. Um, all right, so Ezekiel 25 through 28. So God has Ezekiel prophesy against several Gentile nations. That's the blank there, judging them for their sin and for mistreating Israel. Jeremiah 46 addresses these same issues. He speaks against Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Philistia. Through punishment, the nations will know who God is. Uh, this is very consistent with the theme of the Abrahamic promises says that the nations who bless you will be blessed. The nations who curse you will be cursed. Uh, these nations will be cursed and they will know who God is because of it. A judgment, that's the blank there, a judgment against Tyre is given. This is a city in Lebanon. It's actually one of the uh, longest how would you say this? Uh, longest inhabited, continually inhabited cities in the history of the world, Tyre, uh, still, still in present day Lebanon. Um, a judgment against Tyre is given, specifically addressing its pride in beauty and in riches. Isaiah has also addressed the pride of nations and specifically of Tyre. Uh, God will bring terrors and desolate the city. Ezekiel laments over Tyre and its pride. Ezekiel then prophesies specifically against the king of Tyre. 
who makes his heart like the heart of God, even saying, I am a God. He compares him to angels who were cast out of the Garden of Eden. Ezekiel then laments over the king. Judgment will also come to Sidon, which is also in Lebanon, and they, like Tyre, quote, will know that I am the Lord God. Israel will know him because he will regather them in the land. So there's still hope here. This, what he just says here, anticipates what's coming uh, in the coming chapters. Okay, Ezekiel 29 through 32. God then moves on to Egypt, having Ezekiel prophesy. against them because of their pride. Uh, the Pharaoh also sees himself as a god, and therefore God says he, he, quote, will make the land of Egypt an utter waste and desolation. Also, because the nation has put themselves above others, God will, quote, quote, will make them so small that they will not rule over the nations. God says that he will give over Egypt to the king of Babylon. So not only is he using Babylon to take over Israel or Judah, he's actually using them to take over other nations as well. God says that he will, quote, strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon but the arms of Pharaoh will, fa will fall. <clears throat> then they will know that I am the Lord. God has Ezekiel warn Pharaoh about the fate of Assyria, saying God made them what they were. As he has made Egypt what they were, he will also destroy them, sending them to their place among the dead. Ezekiel laments over Pharaoh, saying God will extinguish him, and that, quote, the sword of the king of Babylon will come upon you. Their place among the dead will be next to other nations who have defied God, like Assyria and Edom. Um, we actually see here these oracles uh, against Tyre and Egypt, there's some similarities. Um, the Tyre oracles are 26 through 29. Um, the, the Egypt oracles are 29 through 32. But in both, they talk about Babylonian destruction. In both, they have a lament for the fallen land. Uh, and in both, they have an indictment against pride. So let's read that real quick. Uh, 28, Ezekiel 28, uh, you see there 1 through 2 of chapter 28. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, 
yet you are but a man, and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. And then uh, if you skip ahead to chapter 31, we see something very similar with Egypt. Uh, there, verse uh, 10 and 11 of Ezekiel 31. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it towered high and set its top among the clouds and its heart was proud of its height, I will give it to the hand of a mighty one of the nations. He shall surely deal with it as its wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. So we see some similarities here uh, between the two nations and a repeat of these prophecies related to the pride um, that leads to their downfall. So this is setting up what we're about to see uh, when Ezekiel's talking about the new covenant that's going to come for Israel. And this is a contrast, right? It's this is what's happening to the nations because of what they have done, what they have uh, thought of themselves in comparison to me. And then he's going to give something very distinctly different for the future for Israel. So uh, what we can see here, though, is um, something, again, about God's character related to people. Um, and we see pride can be often be our downfall. It is important to remember that we are not God. We did not create what we now have. It was given to us. Sometimes we don't realize this until we have suffered the consequences of our prideful sin and are humbled. So uh, some questions related to this. Do you ever think that it is your own abilities that have given you what you have? Have you ever been humbled and therefore forced to see the error of this thinking? So just general questions about your pride before God, uh, humility before God. Any, anybody have anything to share here? It's oh, the yeah. humbling thing. Yeah. Because you think, you know, you don't have control over it. So it's very sanctifying. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. Like you can do your best, but it's not what ultimately is going to change anything. So it's very humbling. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great example. Anybody else? Um, I would say when my, like, when was going through college, like I was very focused on like doing well and thought, you know, when I get out, you know, all this work is going to pay off and like a good job and everything. And, mm -hmm. um, and then I got out of college and I sat for a year like looking for a job and um, it, was, it was very humbling and yeah. uh, I had to rely on God and just wait on an answer. Yeah. Yeah. Humility. Yeah. Absolutely. Anybody else? Um, I have something. Yeah. Um, when realizing or recognizing who truly God is and who am I, that He would love that. somebody who created everything most powerful of all would care for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's undescribable. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing. 
Okay, let's uh, keep moving on here. Ezekiel 33 through 34. Uh, God reiterates that Ezekiel is to be a watchman. Uh, those who hear his word but still rebel will be held accountable for, th for their sin, not Ezekiel. So we see some intertextuality here with, I believe, is chapter 3. Ezekiel's a watchman. He's been given this commission. Um, so the, those who hear from Ezekiel but still rebel, Ezekiel's not responsible for them but he is going to be held responsible. That's what it said earlier. He is going to be resp held responsible for those he does not tell. Uh, so that's why he's a watchman. God says that he will judge everyone in Israel for their ways, whether they practice wickedness or justice and righteousness. Those are the blanks there, justice and righteousness. The people in exile find out that Jerusalem has been taken Uh, so I'd say he's, he was saying that this was going to happen. This is where we see him being really justified as a true prophet. Uh, you can see him talking about that in Ezekiel uh, 33, 33, chapter 33, verse 33 there. Uh, and they go to Ezekiel to seek counsel. Um, so uh, they, they seem to be acknowledging, well, what he says will come to pass. So let's actually go to him for counsel now. Um, and I think the reader at this point can say, yeah, everything he says uh, will come to pass. So uh, the people in exile find out that Jerusalem has been taken, and they go to, to Ezekiel to seek counsel. Uh, they do not listen to Ezekiel's preaching, however, and do not repent. Ezekiel then prophesies against the shepherds of Israel saying that they have failed to lead the people. God says he will gather them out from the peoples and, quote, feed them on the mountains of Israel. So we've got a, um, some intertextuality in John where he's kind of referring to this concept of the shepherds of the past, the shepherds of Israel, you really highlighting these passages here. Um, and then Jesus in, the, in John speaking about himself as the true shepherd. And at the end of John kind of uh, transitioning that commission of the shepherding to his apostles. Uh, God says he will gather them out from his peoples and feed them on the mountains of Israel. He says he will separate his sheep from the goats. Once this remnant of sheep has been found... God says he will, quote, set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. Of course, this is based on the promise of the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7, which we read uh, in, the, in the former prophets. Uh, and he will feed them and he will make a covenant of peace with them. Jeremiah uses similar language to describe this future covenant and the Davidic leader. You can see those passages there. Uh, they will not be bothered by other nations and famine anymore. So they will return to um, 
the conditions in the future, they will return to the conditions that you see in the Garden of Eden. They won't have all these, all these issues. Uh, okay, so let's see, Ezekiel 35 through 37. God has Ezekiel prophesy against Mount Seir, S-E-I-R. This is Edom. Mount Seir is Edom. Uh, and the bloodshed they have caused. God says he will deal with this people for the way they've acted towards Israel. Uh, we actually have a prophecy in Numbers 24 about Edom, how the Messiah will conquer and rule over this nation. So we see some intertextuality here with that. Uh, Ezekiel then prophesies blessing on the mountains of Israel, saying that they will, quote, put forth your branches and bear your fruit for my people Israel. They will not be disgraced by other nations, and their blessings will be in stark contrast to other nations. God says he had no concern for my holy name. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, God says he had concern for my holy name. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, he says he wants to prove himself holy among you in their sight. He will do this by gathering a remnant from the lands and planting them in the land of Israel. And as we've been talking about, we see two different ways that the remnant is referred to. Um, and sometimes they're kind of, kind of joined. It's ambiguous enough that you can kind of think of it in both ways. Not only a remnant of physical people from Israel and Judah returning from exile, but also there's this distant group in the future that will be in Zion with the Messiah. Um, okay, so he will do this by gathering a remnant from the lands and planting them in the land of Israel. He says he will sprinkle them clean, separating them from their idol worship. He also says, God also says that, quote, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Uh, let's look at that. That's Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. One of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, maybe in the entire Old Testament, 36. Uh, Got to get a volunteer read 26 and 27. Yep. Go ahead. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to do my good. Awesome. Thank you. So uh, we have, this is Jer uh, Ezekiel's um, contribution to the idea of the new covenant, the covenant that is to come, how it will be different from the old. Uh, it's also a contrast to what we just saw, with the pride of these other nations, right? This is distinctly different from that because he's saying, God's saying, I'm going to save you. I'm going to do this. This is nothing of you. I'm going to do this and initiate it. I'm going the one that's going to give you a new heart. 
Um, and again, also notice the emphasis on the theme of Ezekiel, God's presence, right? He's going to put his presence into your heart. So after this transformation has occurred, God says he will rebuild the cities of physical Israel. In this time, all of Israel will have the new heart that the remnant has. Uh, 33 there. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt. So I think that's connecting this future covenant with um, the prophecies about the kingdom, right? The prophecies about God's king on earth, uh, the Messiah ruling over his people physically. Uh, in this time, all of Israel will have a new heart that the remnant has. God takes Ezekiel to a valley filled with dry bones. Ezekiel prophesies, and the bones come together. Flesh grows on them, and breath comes to the people that are made alive. Now, what, a, what an illustration this is. Uh, God says the people of Israel are like these. And that he, quote, will put my spirit within you and you will come to life. So uh, Rich talked about this, these passages a lot last week. And then Jerry mentioned it again today, this concept of, you know, if you're spiritually dead, you're spiritually dead, right? You're unable to do anything on your own spiritually. This is the illustration here. This is what happens in the new covenant. Um, these are dry bones. They're completely dead and without life. And God initiates and gives the life. Uh, so God also tells Ezekiel that Israel and Judah will once again become one. They will no longer, quote, defile themselves with their idols. He once again refers to the Davidic king who will reign. saying he will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. He once again says that he will make an everlasting covenant with them. Uh, it will take God's initiative to transform the hearts of the people. So scripture has consistently shown us that the heart of the person is the problem, right? We saw that in the very opening pages of scripture. We saw that throughout the Pentateuch in this uh, continual pattern of trying to uh, deal with the heart of the people through the Mosaic Covenant. We saw the heart was the issue. Um, and this is dealing specifically with the heart. God is initiating and God is changing the heart. Uh, and again, it's consistent with Ephesians 2 we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And then he saves us. Okay, so uh, significance here. Much like the dry bones, God must bring spiritual life to us through the transformation of our hearts. This is in contrast to the idea that we must change our own lives to achieve righteousness. This is the gospel, right? I mean, we've got a fully displayed gospel here in Ezekiel. Right? Everything but the details about how Christ will do it, 
uh, we have here in Ezekiel. Um, have you ever tried to change your life with your own efforts or without God's spirit? Why is this so difficult? How are our lives or how were our lives like dry bones? Any thoughts here? something that could be wrong with somebody. Somebody's written a book about it. And, uh, and you can go do all that. But if your heart's not in it, or... Anyway, your heart's wicked, so you just yeah. you tend to flop back. Yeah, right. I mean, I knew a... I had a friend, and he, he moved town because he <coughs> just wanted to be somebody else. Yeah. You know, he didn't want to be who he was here, so he moved there. He said inevitably he got there, and he could kind of maintain himself as the person he wanted to be for a while, but in the end, he just turned back into the same person he was before. Yeah, and right. You just couldn't, until you depend on God, and yeah. ask him to, or really until he does it for you, yes. you're just stuck being yes. who you are. Yes, um, yeah, that's a really good illustration. Um, yeah, I know for, in my own life, um, I was, uh, I had just turned 16 and we were going to a new church um, that actually preached the Bible, which I had never done before. And I went to a youth disciple now. And this was like a really major moment for me because I was like, why? There is something distinctly different about these other, you know, 15 and 16 year olds, which is a credit to them, a credit to the concept of the church and, you know, the, the lives of believers and the love of others um, being a witness to someone like me who was an unbeliever, but the message I was still getting there was I, I still have to do something. I'm not like them. I need to be like them. So I spent a few months of frustration trying to change my life on my own and eventually got to, again, reading enough scripture, realizing this is not about me at all. Like I've, this is about what he did on the cross. All I have to do now is just accept this humble myself before God. This is about me figuratively getting on my knees on a daily basis. So that was the real, that's when I was saved. That was the real kind of trigger point for me. Yeah. Well, along those same lines, but you beat me to it. Oh. Um, I grew up in church all my life. But yeah. It was more of a checklist thing. I was doing yeah. all the right things. I was a good little girl. I did what I was supposed to do, you know. And then not until I was 16 years old was it like this, this time, you know, it hit me in the head that it's like, Yeah. And so, um, but I can't do that for myself. Yeah. I am dead. And, yeah. Um, so, thank God for his mercy. Yeah. And someone shared with us recently, because he was part of our small group, but same situation, growing up in church all his life, thought he was saved, and uh, just recently realized he wasn't. So I think there's, you know, there's a fear of that. Always not ever making that assumption that everyone you're with is just because somebody grew up in church that they're saved. Mm -hmm. and, you know, <coughs> Great, thank you. Okay, anybody else? Thoughts on the dry bones, God transforming? 
quick, yeah. Mark. I, I think this ties in really well to um, what we've talked about uh, with the men in the forge on Fridays and walking okay. by the Spirit. Yeah. Um, you know, it, I mean, what is it? Uh, it's Galatians, walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Uh-huh. And so, like, that right there is, like, the difference, right, between trying under your own power to obey the Lord and doing it under the power of the Spirit. Yeah. And those who don't obey the Lord under the power of his Spirit are dry bones mm. and do it themselves. It's yeah. not until God puts his Spirit in us, like the passage literally said, yeah. um, that we can walk yeah. and follow him. So I was just making that connection in my yeah. head. That's great. That's great. Thanks. Anybody else? Okay. Uh, let's move on to Ezekiel 38 through 39. Uh, Ezekiel then prophesies against Gog, uh, saying that, uh, saying that, uh, I don't know what I wrote there, <laughs> that he, Gog, will never destroy Israel as Assyria and Babylon were able to do. Um, now, uh, there's some medieval maps that kind of place the, an actual physical Gog kind of more north, far east kind of area. Um, I'm, not, I'm not really sure. A lot of people would just say this is kind of more spiritual language about just an enemy of Israel. Uh, but it could be that there's an actual... We do know that Gog and Magog are spiritually uh, enemies of God in Revelation. So um, anyway, regardless, uh, he says that Gog will never destroy Israel as Assyria and Babylon were able to do. God says that these people will devise a plan against Israel, but God will allow them to come up against Israel. Um, uh, let's see. When, but when they do come up against them, God's anger will come and he will bring torrential rain, hailstones, fire, and brimstone. By destroying Gog and Magog, God says that he will make known his holy name, quote, in the midst of my people Israel. Uh, God will even set aside an area of land to bury Gog and all his horde. H-O-R-D-E, all his horde. God also says that he will set my glory among the nations. Uh, he will restore Israel and they will, quote, forget their disgrace and live in the land without fear of others. In this time, God will no longer hide his face from them, but, quote, will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel. So again, we see language about the new covenant and Ezekiel's specific contribution to it is that God's presence will be with them in the new covenant. It says he will no longer hide his face from them. Again, his presence will be with them in the new covenant. He will pour out his spirit on their house. Um, now this, this Gog Magog thing, I'll just touch on this a little bit here. Uh, several views of this, 38, 39. Um, some would say this is allegorical. We're not um, really talking, I don't have this on the board. Some are saying this is allegorical. We're not talking about a, a literal nation here. Um, some would say this is historical, that, it's, that it actually does happen. Um, Esther 9 speaks of something you know, similar to this, somebody coming up against them. And um, uh, 
so that's possible, I guess. Uh, number three view would be this is this actually happens before the rapture, mm -hmm. so something that we're approaching in the future. Uh, a fourth view would be this is uh, happening during the tribulation, this uh, defeat of Gog and Magog. Um, uh, fifth view would be this is after the second coming, uh, but maybe uh, before the millennium, and then um, uh, after, uh, and then a sixth view would be after the millennium. Uh, we actually see in Revelation 20, 7 through 9, it actually refers to Gog and Magog there. So uh, that's probably the most likely Ezekiel's, Ezekiel's prophecy about this is a distant future prophecy a victory against Gog and Magog. These other nations have had victory. I've allowed this to happen, says God. Gog says God, but <laughs> says God. But uh, in the future, Gog and Magog, I will allow them to come up against him, but they will not have victory. They will be defeated. Um, and this is consistent with what we see in Revelation 20. So, um, yeah, that, that's a good view. I, I don't really have a strong opinion on which of these is the right one, but... Just going to happen. Yeah, it's, yeah, I think it is a future. I mean, I, I don't know. The, the Esther 9 view is not... Um, I don't know that that's uh, a common view. So um, one, of the, one of these other ones, that it is a futuristic prophecy, is probably right. Okay, uh, Ezekiel 40 through 42... Ezekiel is taken in a vision to a place in Israel where a man with a measuring rod meets him and shows him something. He is to, quote, declare to the house of Israel. He shows him measurements of a rebuilt temple. He also shows him an outer court and an inner court, along with the gates, pillars, and porches all around. He shows him the tables for offerings and the chambers for the priests. He then shows him around the inner temple, including the measurements of the doorposts and walls of the side chambers. He shows him the outer court, the north chambers, the south chambers, along with the measurements of the outer walls. Because the temple has always been a place of God's presence, this future covenant will apparently have a future temple where the people can focus on their relationship with God. So again, this is the emphasis here in Ezekiel. It's about the presence of God, presence of God with the people. Uh, Ezekiel 43 through 48. Yeah. Great question. Let's talk about that in the next section. I'm going to talk about that some more. Really good question. Okay, uh, Ezekiel then gets a vision of God filling the temple with his glory. God says that he will dwell with the sons of Israel forever. Uh, so a key difference between this temple and the old temple, Solomon's temple, is God's presence left. In chapter 10, remember we just read that. And it returns in this temple here in 43.4. And it left through the east gate. It says here in 43 that it's going to return through the east gate, the presence of God. 
So because they will be in the new covenant and everyone in the covenant will be a believer, God can now make such promises because the new temple will not be defiled with idolatry as it has been in the past. Ezekiel is then shown the altar of sacrifice and given the instructions for making offerings. Offerings, making offerings. Uh, Levites will once again be appointed to take care of the temple, yet they won't lead the people astray like they've done in the past. Specific ordinances are given for the Levitical priests, along with certain restrictions about what they are to eat. A specific portion of the land is to be set aside for the temple. Also in this future time, princes will rule with justice and righteousness, businesses will deal with integrity, and the holy days will all be observed appropriately. Princes will offer sacrifices appropriately and everyone will observe the Sabbath correctly. Ezekiel is shown, uh, is shown the water flowing to and from the temple and is told how the land is to be divided among the 12 tribes and Gentiles. The portions to be given out to everyone and the measurements of the city gates are also given. The temple is the center of living for the people and is central to their life. And again, the point is God's presence will be back. It will be back with the people. Okay, so what is this? <laughs> this is a rather difficult portion of scripture. Um, what is this temple? Uh, again, number one, you'd have those that are, would think of this as more allegorical. We're not really talking about a real physical temple. Uh, number two, uh, there would be those that say, well, we're actually talking about the historical temple that was rebuilt in Nehemiah's day. Um, because, you know, uh, there, at least the intention was to bring back everything uh, as far as it, you know, is lined out here with the sacrifices and everything else. Uh, number three, uh, this is a millennial temple. Um, now, the problem with this view is why would we need sacrifices? Why do we need sacrifices in the millennium? It's a good question. Uh, and then number four is maybe this is more speaking about the eternal state, a temple in the eternal state, but that's a problem because in Revelation 21, 22, it says uh, there's no temple in the new heaven and new earth. So uh, <laughs> this is a difficult one. I mean, my guess is that um, this is a millennial temple um, and for some reason there are sacrifices. Um, we know there's no reason for sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. There's no need for a day of atonement anymore in the millennium. Um, so for some reason, there is, there's still some of these other things. And uh, potentially it's, um, again, to show the people in the millennium what the intention of this was originally and how it can truly be done in honoring God um, with those who actually have their hearts transformed. Um, that's one viewpoint. Um, that was probably where I would land. Millennial Temple, yeah. I was just thinking maybe they're offering some sacrifices for Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it would clearly there would have to be uh, somewhat of a different intention or purpose for the sacrifices, right? That's the that's how you would have to. But I, I think this is the best. Again, big picture. The true meaning of these passages are talking about the new covenant. Um, you know, that's a that's a problem for this being, you know, the Nehemiah temple. That's a problem for that because we're not, um, you know. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. That was only, you know, four, four decades after the New Covenant had even started. So, um, you know, that, that's, that's a problem for that view. So I think the best, the best uh, thought here is that it's, it's a temple that will be built in the thousand-year reign. Any other questions, comments on that? Thoughts? Wish I had a better, clearer answer for you. This is a very difficult part of Scripture. Yeah. New heavens and new earth, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because we will have a, yeah, there's a millennial banquet, yep, that uh, Luke talks about that. Yeah. Does the temple serve more function than just slaughtering animals for sin? Yeah. Well, no doubt, no doubt. And that, that's the real point here, right? It's about God's presence will return, right? In the new covenant, God's presence will be with you. So. Even, even just babies were brought to be dedicated at the temple. Uh-huh. Right? So I think the millennial, there'll be kids being born, mm-hmm. population's increasing. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Okay. Cool. Uh, yeah. Does that mean that the main thing in the main is a Jewish temple? Yeah, I would say the, the primary purpose for biblical prophecy of the millennium is to fulfill the unfulfilled prophecies from the Old Testament related to the Abrahamic promises about uh, the, the people being in the land and connecting the David prophecies, the, the Messiah ruling over the people in the promised land. So that's uh, certainly a view we would have at this church is that um, there is a future for Israel and the millennium is kind of primary uh, um, fulfillment of that purpose. Um, Isaiah 2, for instance, we uh, talked about this in the last six weeks. Um, Isaiah chapter 2, I think there's a real distinct kind of purpose for the Messiah ruling in Zion over his people. And I think a millennium from Revelation 20 really kind of fits that purpose. Because just reading what we read a little while ago, it's like you have David being the king there. Yeah. You kind of go, okay. Yeah. It's like, I guess he is the, the, the uh, not, I guess, resurrected David, I guess. Yeah, no, I think we're, I think now we're, spe- we're specifically, whenever you're talking about David, it's, David. A, it's, well, I mean, he's, I think he's talking about the Messiah. Right, the Davidic king. He's making a prophecy about a Davidic king. So he's going to come from heaven and rule in Israel. Yes, Christ will do that. Yes. Yep. Mark. Yep. Back up, about towards halfway up, your sentence says Ezekiel's then shown the altar of sacrifice, 
and given the instructions for making offerings. Mm -hmm. So are they sacrifices or are they offerings? Uh, well, I think it uses both, uh, both terms in the passage. So just being a millennial king temple, it could be more the offerings than the sacrifices, right? Could be. <laughs> yeah. I think, I mean, that's, that's where I would land on this. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I mean, this, this will be up there in my uh, questions <laughs> when I get to heaven. This will be way up there. Yeah, this is, this is a difficult passage, but I think that's probably the best way to understand it. Yep. All right, anybody else? Okay, uh, let's uh, finish up here. Uh, Ezekiel finishes his description and writing by stating that the name of the city from that day shall be Lord is there. All of the promises described in this new Israel are based on the promise that God will be there. Just like belief is only possible because he has changed the hearts of the people, blessing is only possible because of his presence. The spiritual blessings promised in this text are accompanied by the promise of this presence. So this is something to really look forward to, is the presence of God. Um, so we've got this kind of description of a new Jerusalem here with God's presence. The descriptions of the new Jerusalem provide a future look at life on earth for believers who have had their hearts changed and will one day be there. Uh, we can use this text as an encouragement to live our current lives with an eye towards the future when things won't be described as ungodly chaos. Uh, do you ever find yourself giving up on the current world around you? How can the Bible's vision of the future provide you with hope? How does this hope affect the way you live today? Um, any thoughts here? I mean, this we're already in the New Covenant, right? I mean, we, we have the presence of God through the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but there is a sense here where the full culmination of the New Covenant will happen when we get to the millennium and then new, new heavens and new earth. So I think there's a sense here where this is something to look forward to. Um, there's, you know, <laughs> there, there, we, I, I think at the end of the millennium, we see some ungodly chaos because, uh, you know, further generations have come and, and there's an army that rises up against the armies of God. But um, I think, we're seeing Christ reign on earth, there's going to be something better than what we're going on through right now, right? And I think that's something to look forward to. So any thoughts here? It should drive us to evangelism. Mm, yeah. Instead of trying to legislate morality, it's a hard issue. That's evangelism. Gary's message this morning. Yeah. Your, your notes here. Yeah. You know, the dry bones. Yeah. Yep, that's good. Yeah, I, I, you know, I will frequently get excited about something that will, um, you know, come out or, you know, some, some really good Christian production or something. Oh, man, if, um, 
you know, like Ben Stein had that movie like 15 years ago, and I was like, man, this is really going to shake things up in academia. You know, it's like creation, evolution, debate, and everything. And I was like, yeah, I can get excited about that, but there's a tempering of it. It's like none of this is really going to be solved until Christ comes, right? I mean, that's um, so in the meantime, I think that's a great message. We, we should be sharing the gospel. That's the main thing we should be doing. That's where we should put our hope because that's the only thing that's going to change hearts and minds. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would hear this line of thinking primarily like in high school and more like Presbyterian circles about the idea of like renewal and restoration of the world like now. Yeah, right. Um, and that sort of being the mission of the church. Like how do you reconcile that if you do with the idea like, you know, Paul says the world that's present form is passing away. Yeah. Um, and this idea that God is the one who will make all things new. Um, in the kingdom. So, like, would you reconcile those at all, or how do you think about that? Uh, like, kind of separate from the idea of evangelism, like Paul says. Yeah. Um, well, you could probably guess what I'm going to say. I'm going to uh, <laughs> I'm going to say that, that that has to do with a, um, a different view of eschatology. Because, um, uh, you know, a, a premillennial view suggests that things are getting worse, that Paul and the other authors are suggesting things are getting worse, um, and that the only thing that's going to save it is Christ's rapture and the start of this tribulation. Whereas you've got some other views like post-millennialism, which are suggesting that we're in this time of bringing about the transformation of the world. And that's part of the church's mission. But um, certainly at this church, we wouldn't believe that. Um, and so, yeah, I, so uh, to land the plane, I, I couldn't really reconcile those. Okay. That's, that, that's, that's really helpful. yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, it, I'm not suggesting that we should not be involved in the public space, um, but at the same time, I think any, anything good that happens, like we have a, you know, if say our next president is a strong believer or some president in the future is a strong, I'm not sure any of the current candidates are, but if, I, don't, I don't know, but, but say in the somewhat near future, we have a strong believer who becomes, like we can rejoice in those things. Um, uh, at the same time, I think we, uh, can acknowledge that what God does is going to happen regardless, uh, and what He promises will happen will happen regardless. And I think, um, I think the, um, you know, I want to be careful not to make arguments from history. I mean, we see in um, we see in history the um, uh, theological liberalism and Schleiermacher, and they were kind of arguing a lot of this kind of. Uh, progressive uh, kind of restoration um, that people are, you know are becoming better and we're coming more and more like Christ etc and then um, after World War one I, I mean Bart came along it's like people are not getting better this is ridiculous I mean this is this this world is going is heading to hell in a handbasket right I mean Bart wouldn't say that he'd say it much more eloquently but um, but that that kind of shifted things. I think in people's thoughts, but but and and it's 
eventually I just got to keep coming back to Paul and the other, especially the general epistles who keep talking about things are getting worse. As things get worse, the more and more important it is to have uh, your church, your local church structure with elders, with all, with, uh, you know, fighting against false teaching. All of these things become more and more important as the world gets worse and worse and we get closer to Christ's return. So that seems to be the message of the New Testament, I think, is that things are getting worse and worse. Christ's return uh, and the tribulation then leads to this millennium that he, he, he transforms the world in. So. Thanks for praying for Israel today. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, there's an example of current events that if somebody said something to us as a believer, we could point to Scripture yeah. and use that as a bridge to evangelizing. Yeah. Because yeah. it's clear that that's part of God's plan. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's another great example of like, you know, I'll, re I'll rejoice. Anything that, you know, I, I want, think we want to support Israel as a nation. Um, at the same time, we want to be like what you just said. Our true focus should be on the gospel, sharing the gospel um, in, in any of these situations, in any of these. So politically, we can like, we can support Israel, rejoice for Israel, et cetera, but they need the Lord too. Right, they need the Messiah too. So in our present state, it's about the gospel. It's about sharing the gospel. So, yeah, that's good. Uh, anybody else? Any thoughts on future of the world? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, right. You, know, you, you can't really, um, it would not let you just, you know, go past that. Right. It's like forcing you to be uh, dragged into the world. Yep. It's so crucial for us to now think where do I to be right. in eternity. Right. I mean, as we can see that this time goes by so fast. Now is the time. There is no more to wait. Yeah. That's a good word. Cling, cling to the word. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, just want to finish up with, uh, been continuing this. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, but we're seeing this theme of the new covenant um, kind of pre present here in the latter prophets. Uh, we saw in the Pentateuch, Mosaic covenant is insufficient because of the heart. It's nothing wrong with the covenant itself, but it can't deal with the heart. We see this pattern of they continually fail, regardless of the stipulations that are given. 
the new covenant is a new covenant. It's not the renewal of the Mosaic. It's a completely new covenant. We see that in these uh, prophetic passages. Uh, the Mosaic covenant is written on tablets. The new covenant is written on the heart. Moses envisions that. Uh, the Spirit of God transforms. Uh, we see that in both this passage we studied a couple weeks ago in Jeremiah and here the passage we studied today. Uh, in Jeremiah, the message was destruction and exile have to come. It's for a new building to be constructed from the rubble of the old. That was the primary connection with Jeremiah and this future covenant. And now Ezekiel's primary contribution is with the presence of God. God will take the initiative and put his own presence into the heart of the people. That's what happens in the New Covenant. Now, we talk about the minor prophets, the 12 minor prophets are what we're going to study for the rest of this uh, segment of classes on Sunday morning. And they're going to continue to make contributions to this concept of the New Covenant. Uh, what we'll see is as we go through the 12, uh, they're going to connect the New Covenant with the Messiah. And as we go on through the 12, they're going to kind of push the timing a little bit of when you're expecting the full restoration uh, of the people to happen through this new covenant. So that's something to look forward to.